Father, I, I do thank you for this very special season of the year. A season that we're constantly reminded, no matter where we go, of your arrival. God, I, I pray for the next few moments that you might remind us that your arrival wasn't a mistake, wasn't just by chance, but that you had carefully planned your arrival from eternity past to come and to be the Savior of mankind and to promise us a future in your presence for all eternity of what your son was willing to endure for us. For the next few moments, God, please remind us of the incredible truth of Christmas. It's in your son's holy and precious name I ask. Amen. Can I let you in on, I was going to say a secret, maybe it really isn't a secret, but a reality, that Christmas is the favorite dreaded time of most pastors. If you've been in the same place as Orville has for 23 years, or as I had the wonderful privilege of doing 25 years in picture, it's exciting to see Christmas arrive. But then as you begin to realize that Christmas really is only told in two places. You, you can go to Matthew's account, and you can go to chapter 1 and chapter 2, and they're amazing stories and some wonderful realities, largely from the perspective of Joseph. Or you can go to Luke. But in the Gospel of Luke, you also only get two chapters. And so that means you've got your first two years of Christmas covered. Maybe the third year. Orville was kind enough. We were out for coffee uh, two months ago, three months ago. And he asked if I would be willing to, to help share the preaching duties over for Christmas. And I'm always thrilled to have a chance to not have to get up early in the morning and travel to Chicago or Minneapolis or wherever. And so this year, we're talking about Christmas. But maybe not from the perspective that you were expecting. Luke ends with this rather interesting story. After Jesus has died and been buried and has rose from the dead, we see these two disciples. They're leaving Jerusalem. They had enough. They don't understand these stories of resurrections. They're just done with it. And Jesus shows up, but they don't recognize Jesus. And he asks, what are you talking about? And they inform him. And as they continue to talk, finally Jesus stops them. And he makes one of the most amazing statements, and a statement that... I'm not sure I always believe. He says to them, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Do you really believe that Jesus is woven through all of the Old Testament? I, I have to be honest. Far too often I come to the Old Testament as this collection of amazing stories, this writing of some incredible truths, that I need to understand. But do I really believe Jesus is there? <clears throat> Broken by the cry of a tiny baby born in a manger, his name was Jesus. Jesus was the Messiah. He lived a sinless life performed miracles and showed the people how to return to God again. Some believed Jesus. Most did not. 
He was arrested and crucified on the cross. And then something amazing happened. Three days after his death, Jesus came to life again, conquering death and defeating sin once and for all. At the beginning, we said that all of the Bible points to Jesus. So you might think it's strange that he appears so late in the story. Or does he? Look closely, and you'll find signs that point to Jesus right from the very beginning. God used the ark to save Noah, pointing to the day when we would find salvation in Jesus. God promised to bless the world through Abraham's family, which he did through Jesus. The sacrifices pointed to Jesus, who became the ultimate sacrifice for our sin. The pages of the Bible are filled with stories that point us to Jesus. In 2018 and 2019, I, I think I had a chance to preach my favorite series ever. <laughs> Not just because I got to be in a cool car every Sunday, but we took and went through the entire Bible, a book a Sunday. And we walked through the Old Testament in 2018. And as we were coming to the end of 2018, I wanted to find Christmas not in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament. And so we went back to the major prophets. If you were here last Sunday, and if you're here next Sunday, Orville is going back to the, the prophet Isaiah and showing how Jesus was so clearly laid out. We're going to, on Christmas Eve, go to the stories of the poetry, specifically finding Jesus in the book of Psalms. But this morning, I want to do something a little different. I want to go to the, the law first five books. Can I really, can you really find Jesus there? Well, Orville gave me 30 minutes, 35 minutes. He says he doesn't care, so maybe I can take my full five hours and add on each of those five books. But the books of the Pentateuch aren't normally where you would go. But I would argue you can find Jesus in each of them. Let me walk backwards. The book of Deuteronomy is actually Moses' final sermon. It's a series of five sermons as Moses prepares a new generation to enter the promised land. The original generation that came out of Egypt had all died. And Moses prepares them. And in chapter 18, he will make this statement. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. And then if anyone does not listen to my words, that the prophet speaks in my name, I myself will call to account. If we had time, I'd love to walk you forward to Acts chapter 3. And as Peter stands on the temple grounds, he preaches a sermon. He says, the one that you crucified was the prophet. That Moses spoke of. As we go to the book of Numbers, we began putting our sermons online clear back in about 2015. And it was always intriguing for me to go back at the end of the year and see which sermons were listened to or are watched the most. To my amazing surprise, the most watched sermon from the entire Old Testament was the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers begins with this long, drawn-out 
genealogy, if you will, telling you how many people were in each of the tribes. And then it ends again with the genealogy. And while we, okay, I often want to project my failures on you. Maybe you love the genealogies and the chronologies of, of numbers and chronicles. But I don't think it's a coincidence that the book of Matthew begins with a genealogy. Because God wants you to know Jesus is a man. An incarnate God, clothed in man. But the book of Numbers has some amazing stories. In fact, if you look at simply the way that they were commanded to, every single time they would camp, they would camp in this cross. And at the very center of the cross was the presence of God himself. Picture what would come. As you jump forward in chapter 21, one of the things that we as humans really like to do is we like to rank sins. Did you know God does that too? You know what his three top sins are? Idolatry, immorality, complaint. In fact, in Numbers 21, God had had enough of their complaining. And he sends serpents to kill his and then finally, as they cry out to God, God says to Moses, build a brazen serpent and lift it up, and all who look upon it will be healed. That becomes the story that Jesus will turn to and maybe the most familiar passage in all of the Gospels. In John chapter 3, Jesus is going to say, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who looks on him who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall never perish, but shall have everlasting life. But maybe the clearest prophecy comes from the prophet you're more familiar with his donkey than you are him. Balaam, as he was hired to curse Israel, couldn't do it. And in his middle uh, cursing, he says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel, who will crush the heads of Moab. We could go to the book of Leviticus. And Leviticus is maybe the most difficult of the Old Testament books for us to grasp because there's so many rules, so many regulations. Pork good. Let me rephrase that. Pork bad, beef good, shrimp bad, cod good. You can't cut the sides of the, the hair on your heads if you're a guy. There's so many regulations, and I struggle with what is the purpose of them. And may I suggest there's at least two pretty clear purposes. One, God wants his people to be different. And secondly, God wants you to understand that you can't possibly earn his faith. Paul in Colossians chapter 2 is going to point back to all of the ceremonies, all of the, the festivals, and he's going to say in chapter 2, therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or, or with regard to the religious festivals, a new moon, a celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are all shadows. What is a shadow? A shadow gives you a clear understanding of what it's showing, but none of the details. The book of Leviticus provides a shadow of the one who would come. But maybe the clearest story would be in the book of Exodus. As, as the children of Israel cry out to God, needing a savior, and 
God raises up Moses, and after this series of, uh, of these incredible plagues, not random acts of God, but he answers the question that Pharaoh poses, who is this God that I should listen to him? And so God tackles the gods of Egypt, and the final one is he attacks the firstborn of every family. And you get this incredible <coughs> picture of a Passover in which you take a lamb and you bring it into your house and it lives with you for an entire week. And then you slay it. And you cover the doorposts of your house with its blood so that when the angel of God comes, he will pass over your house. But for the few moments we have, I really would like to just really center in on two stories in the book of Genesis. One at the end, at one in the beginning. One of the things is, I was going through the book of Genesis, I never noticed that. I don't know if you have or not, but do you know how the book of Genesis ends? The first verse and the last verse? In the beginning, God created. He was placed in a coffin in Egypt. That's our lives. God made you. And one day you will lay in the front of the church lifeless life. That's the book of Genesis. In fact, in chapter 49, there's this really fascinating story in, in which Jacob is preparing for his death, and the way the story ends is he covers his feet and he goes to sleep with his fathers. But before he does that, he brings all of his sons. Jacob assembles them, and he, he's going to give them one last blessing before he goes, and, and he begins with Reuben. Now, Reuben was the oldest, and tradition was that the oldest would receive a double blessing. You would get twice as much as everyone else. But it doesn't quite work out that way. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity, and preeminent in power. But and unstable as water, you shall not have the preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. When Reuben thought he had a chance to take over the family, he sleeps with one of the members of the, the harem of Jacob. And because of that, he doesn't get the double blessing. So he goes to Simeon and Levi. And, and maybe you remember this story. Uh, one of Simeon and Levi's sisters was raped. And so they do this where they go into the village and they say, all right, we will give you our sisters and daughters. And we will take your sons, but, but everybody needs to be circumcised. And so they circumcise the entire village. And, and when the men are laying in great pain, Simeon and Levi go in and kill them all. And because of that, in verse 7, it says, Cursed be their anger, for it's fierce, and their wrath, for it's cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So who's the fourth one? The fourth one is Judah. Let me ask. You're Judah. You've heard what Jacob has to say to Reuben, to Simeon, to Levi. And just so you kind of understand who Judah is, if you remember back when Joseph was taken, his brother said, let's kill him. And it was Judah that says, no, 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 that would be too easy of a fate for him. Why don't we sell him into slavery? That way he can be miserable the rest of his life and we can get rich. You remember in chapter 38, Judah does what? Far too many did in that day. He went to the temple for a religious experience, which meant hiring a temple prostitute. 
who just so happened to be his daughter-in-law. Now, 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 before you think too badly of Judah, Judah is also the one that when he went to and Joseph, Joseph said that he wouldn't allow them to come back into Egypt unless they brought Benjamin. And Jacob said, there's no way I'm letting Benjamin go. And Judah says, Father, my life for his. And then when Judah, or when Joseph wants to hide, arrest Benjamin, it is Judah that stands up and says, no, take me. I would suggest that Judah is a lot like me, or you. Got some good things, got some bad things. And as Judah already hears the condemnation of Reuben, of Simeon, of Levi, I wonder if he isn't expecting it to continue. But Jacob says, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of the enemies. Your father's sons shall bow their own before you. And he gets down. One of the big struggles I have when I come to the Old Testament is I know how the New Testament goes. And I bring that understanding back into the Old Testament. But I want you to imagine this Christmas. Your entire family is gathered around and the patriarch of the family is getting up in years, and he brings you all together, and he says, Brielle is going to be the queen of this family. Families don't have scepters or kings, do they? What do you mean Judah is going to have the scepter, and it shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet? Jacob is predicting one of the greatest stories humanity will ever have a chance to experience. That coming from the loins of Judah is a lion. One of the things that really perplexes me is I'm not a particularly patient person. Do you know how long it takes before the lion of Judah first shows up? The first one to hold the scepter from the tribe of Judah years before David was a king. And a thousand years from when David is king, 
until Jesus arrives. I don't want things to take a thousand seconds, let alone a thousand years. But, but he's not done with his prophecy. In verse number 11, says, This lion will bind his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. I don't know how many of you have a rural background, but do you know what you don't do with animals? You don't tie them up next to the food source. Several years ago, Braille had a guinea pig. We kept the guinea pig in a cage, it was in the basement, and for whatever reason, we had the food for the guinea pig right next to the cage. The guinea pig figured out a way to stick its head out of the cage to chew through the paper, and now it had a limitless source of food. Because that's what animals do. If you bind your foal to a choice vine, you know what that animal's gonna do? It's gonna eat all of the best grapes that vineyard has. Why in the world would you do that? There's only one reason. Because you live in such prosperity. One choice vine doesn't really matter. In fact, he goes on to say, he will wash his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. I believe what Jacob is getting at is there's coming a time when wine will be as commonplace as water. Does that remind you of any story in the Gospels? maybe in John chapter 2 when Jesus goes to a wedding and they say we're all out of wine and Jesus says no not a problem just fill it up with water because right now wine is as commonplace as water and the story ends with these words this was the first of his signs Jesus did it in a in Galilee and he manifested his glory and his disciples believed on him why did they believe on him? Because 2,000 years earlier, Jacob had predicted there was coming one who could make wine as common as water. But I do want to end with just the beginning story. The story, I, I wish I had more understanding of what the Garden of Eden was like, because I am absolutely convinced that's what heaven is going to be like. They lived in this absolute paradise with animals and fruit and perfect temperatures, so much so they didn't need clothes because they didn't get frostbite and they didn't get sunburn. <laughs> and then a serpent shows up. And the serpent does what the serpent always will do. He first of all tries to get her to doubt God's goodness. And then eventually he will deny God's word. And he will encourage them to disobey. And the moment that Eve eats, and then Adam eats, the world has never been the same. I know that often we talk about Genesis chapter 3 in the sense that it is the curse, but I would argue if you read the passage carefully, men and women are never cursed. The snake is, the ground is, but men and women suffer consequences. The woman's consequences is that there is pain with children. See. I fear that we far too often go to the physical pain involved in childbirth. And I know that it's easy to say, you don't know what that's like, Dan, and you're absolutely right. Oh. <laughs> but may I suggest that's not the greatest pain moms endure? Children have a way of breaking far too many moms' hearts that is way more pain than the future.
few moments of childhood. And I'm convinced that God is saying to Eve, you will have your life wrapped up in your children and they will break your heart. And what's worse, so will your husbands. He says, you will desire them, but they will rule over you. This week as I was reading it, I, I was really struck by a thought that I, I don't know that I've given a lot of thought to. How did their marriage survive? Think about it just for a second. God made Eve for Adam. Eve was deceived. Adam knowingly chose to do his will over God's will. And God shows up, and what does Adam do? Hey, it's not my fault. It's that woman. I wish you had never made her. How do you get past that? How do you get past that offense that Adam levels at Eve? And sadly, all of us are mistakes. Maybe not to that degree, but have done the same to our lives far too often. He, he then turns to men and he says to Adam, the ground is going to be cursed. It's not going to produce fruit like it wants to. In fact, your work will be hard, meaningless. You will die, and everybody will forget you. That's your life. Hard, difficult, meaningless, forgotten. That's the result of sin. But God turns to the serpent. And he does curse the serpent. He says, cursed are you above all the livestock of all the wild animals, you will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust the days of your life. One of the most fascinating realities is if you go to Isaiah, Isaiah is going to give you two pictures of the eternal kingdom in which the lion will lay down with the lamb. That animals will be transformed back to the way they were in the garden. But while lions may change, snakes still slither on the ground. He says you will be cursed I will put enmity between you and the woman. I don't want you to hear that to say that women hate snakes. I hate snakes. I, I don't get the people who like snakes. That's not what he's suggesting. See, I think that Satan had concluded, I now have a, a, an ally in my war against God. Humanity will go to battle with me against God. And God is saying, no, that's not the way it's going to work, Satan. They are not going to be your ally in this great conquest. I will, in fact, put between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head. There's this image in which while sin takes over our hearts and we are consumed by evil, that God is predicting that there is coming a champion. In fact, I would argue the rest of the Old Testament and the New Testament is waiting for this champion who will do battle with a serpent. And on that amazing day, when the serpent raises its head and it strikes the blow to the heel, this champion will crush the head of Satan forever. And it's interesting that he says he, not just offspring in general, but we are waiting for the one who will crush the head of the serpent. Do you know what the name of the first man and woman were? If you answer Adam and Eve, you're happy. Adam is the Hebrew word for humanity. It becomes the name that we normally assign to the, the man. 
But when Adam names himself and Eve, he gives them the name Ish and Isha, male and female, man and woman. So why did he call her Eve? Because they believed God that he would send an offspring. And that through that offspring, all humanity would find life. And so Adam says, Eve, I, I got to change your name. It can't be a female any longer. It must be the mother of all who live. In fact, if you go to chapter 4, it says, Now Adam knew Eve and his wife, and she conceived and bore who Eve honestly thought was that offspring. I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. The, the idea behind the grammar is that I am convinced Eve thought Cain was the one. How'd that work out for her? But there's an interesting part of this story that I have to be honest, I, I didn't get until about nine months ago. One of the churches that I get a chance to serve is a messianic Jewish community in on the north side of Chicago. And I don't even remember what this sermon was about, but they came back with this story. Because if you remember this story, it ends this week, then this way. Then the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life uh, and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden a cherubim with a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the Tree of Life. There's this image of which God evidently only had one gate into the Garden of Eden, the very place that you went to meet God. And he places a cherubim. Why? To protect the way. story, not just some last minute answer, but that 
that from the very beginning, you laid a foundation to be our way to life. God, it is my prayer this morning that in the midst of all the busyness of the season, that we can pause.